Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Unmasking Autism with AFO. I am your host, Carly Marissa Dummett. This podcast is presented by the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma and funded by the Oklahoma State Department of Health. For those who don't know, the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma strives to improve the lives of Oklahomans with autism across the lifespan. Before we jump in, I would just like to say that this podcast will discuss autism, suicide, mental health and wellness, among other topics, with autistic individuals and different professionals with the goal of unmasking stereotypes, increasing awareness, advocating for mental health and wellness, and attempting to shatter the stigmas of these topics through conversation and personal experience. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Unmasking Autism with AFO. I'm your host, Carly Marissa Dummett, the Marketing and Community Outreach Coordinator for the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma. And today I am very excited to introduce you to my guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Tom Taylor. Um, I am currently a uh, third year law student at the um, Oklahoma City Law School. I am also the co-chair of Autistic Adults of Oklahoma, and I am a board member for the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma. Yep, so we're here with Tom today, and we have a very interesting and exciting conversation in store for you. Um, so we will just jump right in. You okay. already mentioned that you are autistic. Mm-hmm. Would you like to give a little bit about your um, you know, life uh, growing up with autism? When were you diagnosed? Things like okay, that. Okay, so um, like many... Um, autistic parents, I found out because my child was getting diagnosed. And so um, had watched the show Parenthood and they have a uh, neurotypical character or they have a neurotypical actor playing an autistic child, but the child did a pretty good job on it. And when I saw that, it reminded me of my oldest child. And so I convinced um, now my ex-wife, but at that time my wife, I convinced her that we need to have my oldest child evaluated. And so um, while my child was getting evaluated, I started reaching out to people, you know, to try and see if anybody could give me advice on this. And I went to, um, I was in a PhD program at the time because I think I'm technically a professional student, but, um, I went to, uh, my committee chair who was, um, who I knew had an adult son with, that was autistic. And so I went to him and I said, I said, you know, my daughter's being evaluated for, for autism. And he says, oh, I have no doubt she has it. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. He's probably seen her like maybe five minutes, not never really interacted with her, you know, just at like um, department, me- you know, events and stuff. And I said, why do you say that? He goes, well, because you have it. And I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're autistic. And I go, how long have you thought that? And he said, well, for as long as I've known you. And I go, I've known you for 10 years. He goes, oh and he goes, I know. <laughs> and so at that point, I had to take a step back. I had to evaluate my life. And I had to start looking at all the stuff that I had seen on the TV that reminded me of my daughter and start realizing, oh, wow, this is checking a lot of boxes. And so um, I... Um, after my daughter had been diagnosed, we were fortunate enough to get her into uh, counseling. So she did counseling for a couple of years. And while at the counseling office, I mentioned that I was thinking about getting diagnosed sometime. And um, they seemed very encouraging on that. And I, it may be because, like, I have a very obvious stem. I, I stem with shoestrings. And so I think that they were like, yeah, let's go ahead and let's do this. So okay. the, the center went ahead and scheduled me for an evaluation. And so I was 38 when I found out that I might be autistic. I was 40 when the diagnosis came in. Okay. That's very interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about being autistic? Like, was it, you know, I mean... Were you, like, shocked? Did it make your parts of your life, like, kind of click together and make more sense? So I I have often said in in my organization, Autistic Adults of Oklahoma, I have said that um, you've never seen people wanting a positive test result more (laughs) than in um, adults getting tested for autism. Because what an autism diagnosis does for an adult who gets a late diagnosis is it basically gives them permission to forgive themselves because um, the unemployment rate for 
autistic adults with um, or autistic people. Um, the unemployment rate for those over the age of 18 is um, about 85% for those with college degrees. So these are, if we're going to use functioning levels, which there is some controversy in the autistic community about that, but if we're going to talk about functioning levels, this is the highest functioning people are going to be the ones who are able to get through a college degree. And if the unemployment rate for that is 85%, then for many of us, whether we're diagnosed or not, we're not getting promoted, we're not getting hired, we're, you know, if there's a downsizing, we're one of the first ones put on the list for downsizing. We are um, fired. Uh, we have um, difficulty maintaining relationships. Mm -hmm. um, the world itself is just completely confusing. So once you have that diagnosis, it gives you an ability to look at your life and realize you've been climbing an incline your entire life and thinking that you've been on flat on flat ground, and it, it definitely um, changes your perspective and, and helps you see um, your successes and your failures in a new light. No, oh, yeah, um, I completely understand that. You know, I was diagnosed at nine, so um, I also think it's kind of like a double-edged sword, like. I really like how you say being diagnosed as an adult gives you permission to forgive yourself. Because mm -hmm. um, for me, growing up, pretty much spending the majority of my life knowing I'm different, mm -hmm. it's like it's a comfort, but it also sometimes was like a point of contention, like mentally for me. Because, mm -hmm. you know, something would happen and I would be, think to myself, like, oh, well, that only happened because I'm different. You know, right. I'm different and I know I'm different and I'm never going to be this normal, never going to be the same as everybody else. And, you know, um, so I think it's interesting hearing um, everyone's, you know, no matter what age they were being diagnosed, like how mm. it affected their life. But uh, before we jump into our questions, um, I want to touch on relationships, maintaining relationships. In the last episode, um, I discussed with the guests we talked a lot about relationships and things. And when it comes to professional relationships, for me, I have discovered I feel like I can maintain them longer and in like the right way if I keep everyone at an arm's length and mm -hmm. just like, this is surface level, that's all it's ever gonna be. I, cause I struggle when I try to pull people inward, like closer. Mm -hmm. um, but if I keep people at like a, you know, metaphorical arm's length, I feel like I can um, keep it alive for a longer period of time. What do you, what do you think about relation? Like, how um, do you maintain relationships? For me, I, I've, you know, there's, there's a saying, it's better to, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And I think there's an autistic version of that, which is basically, I can mask at work, or you know, in any professional setting, I, I can mask. But the problem is, it's basically the equivalent, I'm not a car person, but my understanding is it's the equivalent of trying to go 60 miles an hour in second gear in a, in a standard. I don't know uh, what that On means. the highway. It basically, you're destroying, you're destroying the vehicle. The vehicle's not meant, it wears down far quicker. It's not oh, okay. meant to go, to go for that distance at that speed for that length of, for any length of time. Okay. So when you have to mask in the workforce, what you're basically doing is wearing yourself down quicker because everything is going through this filter. And so um, eight hours for I think autistic people feels like sixteen or more hours yeah. if we're having to mask. So what I so what I typically do is I don't really wear much of a mask. I don't generally filter a whole lot. And I'm just very quick with an apology if I've done anything to to offend somebody. I'm also very quick to ask. I didn't say anything to offend you, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. Okay. No. Yeah. That makes sense. Um. So uh, as you know, um, we are going to talk about suicide and mm -hmm. mental health. And um, so you have done a lot of research on autism and suicide. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about your findings? Like statistically, you know, what are risk factors? Uh, what are the trends we're seeing in the autism community? And then in your opinion, what are also some things that we can do to stop this national crisis from getting worse? Okay, so um, one of the things that I found is that this is, this is a problem that primarily affects 
those that would be considered to be higher functioning diagnosis like ASD level one. Um, generally, when we're talking about autism, people tend to be focused, society tends to be focused on level three, some level two, but level three gets a lot of the attention. And for, I mean, by all rights, I mean, level three definitely has a lot of complications. For those uh, watching that don't know what you mean when you say mm -hmm. the levels, would you mind also uh, giving um, a breakdown so, in your opinion? So level one is essentially uh, the least, um, they, they have the least needs for, um, for help getting through, getting through um, life. Level two is, has moderate needs. Level three has severe needs. So with level three, a lot of times you're, you're, going, you're talking about people that may have a co-diagnosis of like intellectual disabilities mm -hmm. and stuff. And um, I think that's where a lot of the complication comes with, with level three. Um, some people, like the difference between Asperger's and autism used to be um, whether or not the person was nonverbal as a child. Yeah. But one thing we find is that there are a lot of people that are technically nonverbal as far as speaking, but given devices, they're actually very intelligent people. They just don't have the means to communicate other than by something like typing. So one of the problems when you start talking about level one autism is the people who are at level one feel, uh, they tend to feel kind of overshadowed by the people who are um, by the people who are advocating on behalf of the people who are level two and level three. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, it seems like, well, you may not have an intellectual disability. Life for you must be so much easier yeah. than, than life, than, you know, ha having a nonverbal child who, who has a severe intellectual disability and it, it is unable to function in society. The problem is that being diagnosed with level one um, if you have, uh, if you don't have an intellectual disability on top of it, if, if, if you, um, being diagnosed without an intellectual disability, level one is functioning well enough to know how much you don't fit in. Yeah. And so that's where the suicide comes in. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's research that, um, if you have an, if you are autistic, you have an IQ of 120 or above, your suicide rate is six times that yep. of um, somebody of an autistic child who who has an average IQ. So, again, the the uh, more intelligent the person, the more likely they are to be suicidal because they're actually understanding what's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, and suicide is also the um, second leading cause of death for autistic people, mm -hmm. which I don't think gets enough. Awareness. It, it doesn't. And the life expectancy for an autistic person um, is without intellectual disability is 12 years lower than for non-autistic people. And that is primarily driven by the suicide rate. Yeah. Um, there's some research where they, um, a lot of our research tends to come from um, the Scandinavian countries or from um, Europe, Europe in general. Um, this is because they have centralized um, healthcare systems where there's records, it's easier to get into the records. America's a little bit too dis um, America's a little bit too fractured in our healthcare system to be able to look at this data. And some of the research that they, they looked at was um, for suicide itself, people who have committed suicide. And they went through and they figured out, looking at the medical records, that about one in 10 successful suicides, if you can call it a success, but a, a completed suicidal attempt, um, was one in 10 was actually either diagnosed autistic or had autistic traits in their files. Um, when they go back and they look at the, um, when, when the researchers went and looked at talked to the families of people who committed suicide, they found autistic traits in about 40%. Of, of, of the, the people, person's of the, family? They, they found autistic, talking to the families oh, about, okay. about the person who committed suicide, about 40% okay. of them had uh, you know, autistic traits that would have indicated that this person was probably autistic. So okay. when you think about the fact that you know, we are um, you know, less than one in two um, people on, on the planet, the fact that you know, 
possibly 40% of actual suicides are autistic or at least have autistic traits is frightening. It is. And I'm, here's a question for you. Um, in any of the research you've studied, did it ever mention anything about cytokines? Because, uh, and I cannot remember her name, but this high schooler last year, she did, she won like a big uh, science award, mm -hmm. but she did a research project where she looked at um, a bunch of um, people who had killed themselves, mm -hmm. their brains, and uh, what she found was that uh, the majority of the people who had, again, successfully killed themselves released more than normal cytokines. Um, I, I haven't seen any okay. re research on that. Um, you know, again, we're kind of relying on these studies from other countries and yeah. stuff. So it's going to, it's just a matter of somebody, you know, doing enough autopsies and I guess checking on that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's difficult, I think, for people to understand. Um, what it's like to be autistic. And, you know, I, I always use this, uh, this definition that autism is essentially having a brain that's hypersensitive to sensation. That can be emotional, it can be sensory. And we have a certain limit that, of sensor, we have a certain level of um, sensation we can endure before it kicks in our fight or flight comp. Um, Sorry, <laughs> a, before it kicks in a um, fight or flight response. And so what an autistic meltdown essentially is, is it's a fight or flight mm -hmm. response. So we don't, because we're so hypersensitive to sensory issues and emotional issues, we're basically fighting, um, we are basically fighting um, chaos. Our brain is constantly trying to fight chaos. So autistic people are known for um, being very much rules followers. The reason why we're rules followers, and it's not necessarily even the rules of society, but the reason why we tend to have a set of rules that we follow is because every rule that we have is one less thing that to be worried about. Mm -hmm. And so the, um, you're going to a dinner party, um, who's gonna be there? Have you been to this person's house before? what's happened to other dinner parties you've been to, you start planning conversations before you even go. You start trying to think of the rules. Um, many of us, I'm one of these people, although I've had to learn to, to not do this, will be early to the party because it's less chaotic to come into a room and then have people come in than come into a room full of people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, you're, when your life is fighting this chaos, um, things like suicidal ideation is going to be enhanced a little bit because, you know, we're, we're, we're often criticized that we're not emotional. I would argue we're actually more, for many of us, we're more emotional than your typical neurotypical. We just feel the yes. emotion stronger. So um, probably the patron saint of... Um, many people in the autistic community would be um, Spock from Star Trek. Mm. And there's this whole thing in Star Trek where Spock, um, I think it's the path of Sirach, something like that, where basically you, you avoid emotion and you try to be as logical as possible. And for many autistic people, that's how we deal with the hypersensation of emotions and stuff is we try to be very logical. We try to, um, keep those emotions in control because they're honestly quite scary. Yeah. Strong, strong emotions can, can be very disorienting because it's not just you're feeling that emotion, but the more emotion you're feeling, even a positive emotion, the more emotion you're feeling, the less light you can handle, the less sound you can handle, the less um, smells, you, the, the fewer smells you can handle. No, that, yeah, no, that's true. I, um, I very much struggle with my uh, emotion. I mean, I, I, I've gotten a lot better growing up and becoming older, but yeah, no, emotions for me are literally, they, uh, whenever it's like, whenever I get into a romantic relationship, it's like mm -hmm. the things that you're supposed to do and how it's supposed to go and the emotions that come along with it. Like, I feel like my brain just like, like short wires and like, mm -hmm. I just don't get, 
it. And then I, you're, you know, I become very overwhelmed all the time and I don't understand. Um, my my um, oldest child, my autistic child, um, very much about the rules. Everybody has to follow the rules. And to the point that I had to stop her on numerous occasions from manhandling her, her brother, her, her younger brother. Um, you know, she, he's now 11, she's 17. So, you okay. know, it's a bit, a bit of an age gap, but she would physically manhandle him because he was breaking a rule. So she's going to make him follow the rule. You're not supposed to do this. Here, let me physically make you do this. Okay. Unfortunately for her, because in, in her mind, the chaos, this is my perception. Yeah. In her mind, the chaos can be limited if you can make him obey the rules. Unfortunately for her, he has an overdeveloped sense of justice, and her manhandling him means he now has the right to knock the heck out of her. Okay, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately for him, at 17, well, not at 17, but, you know, when she's 11 and he's 5, she doesn't understand he's a 5-year-old. She understands this human being has now assaulted me. I have the right to assault him back in fairness. And so he's about justice. She's about fairness and equality. And it would just blow up into these huge fights. Okay. Well, on, on that note, like, what can you tell us about being an autistic parent and, you know, even more so, like, being autistic yourself and then raising, you know, an autistic child and a neurotypical child? So the, um, the I connect more with, with my oldest child because we, we think very similarly. Um, I don't think my other two children are necessarily neurotypical, but I don't think they're necessarily autistic either. Um, this can become a problem, right? So um, I understand the autistic child, whereas many neurotypical parents don't understand their autistic child. I have more trouble dealing with the other, with the other ch children on, on their issues. And so I tried to be um, accommodating but at the same time, there are things that just seem very illogical to me that can happen between my last, my other two children. And it just seems very illogical to me. And that will sometimes cause conflict between me and my children. Also, regrettably, I know to make accommodations for my oldest child mm -hmm. because the other children manifest um, um, their neural diversity in other ways it's harder for me to make accommodations preemptively because I'm not really thinking how this is going to affect them. Because for many autistic people, it's not, for many of us, we have trouble putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Well, sorry, we have trouble putting, I wanna make sure I get this right. It's hard for me to think how somebody else is feeling in this situation. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to think how I would be in that situation. So I can put myself into situations and think about the needs of my autistic child. Putting myself in situations, I can give an autistic response, um, you know, from a, uh, from a foundation of autism on, you know, how to handle this situation. But that doesn't work for my non-autistic children. You know, trying to, um, trying to, trying to approach my 15-year-old um, daughter from a from a, an approach of okay, what you're saying isn't logical. Let's try and you know, let's try and get past the the emotionality of this, and let's just try and think about this rationally. Doesn't really work with the 15 year old girl, who's not necessarily on the spectrum. Yeah, and so that will cause complications. So, um, in some ways, it helps me because I do understand my oldest child well. But it does cause complications with the others. Um, I've been open with them about being autistic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my uh, middle child has a whole bunch of friends who are autistic. I'm not quite sure if she completely understands what that means. I think at her age, it's more just a label rather than a, let me figure out how I can accommodate them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, you know, it's weird it can be weird, like seeking accommodations from your children. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely weird to them. And so, you know, it's particularly when you're going through your teenage years, 
it's very hard to think of somebody else's perspective from what I've read. And so I think that causes complications also. Yeah, I know for sure. I think, yeah, like you said, you know, I will say that became one of my, and it still is to this day, that's one of my hyper fixations is trying to, since I know I can't do it instinctually well, like Mm -hmm. understand people's perspectives, I feel like almost to like a detriment. Sometimes like when a situation happens with numerous people in it that I'm not really too sure what's going on, I will spend so much of my mental capacity trying Mm -hmm. to look at it from if there's three people involved, I try to like walk through the entire situation from every single person that's involved. And then I try to break down from a psychology standpoint where that person may be coming from because that's calming to me almost. Well, that's, that's, um, <laughs> I've, I read a thing one time. It said that neurotypicals approach social situations through instinct. Yeah. They, they see it. They just know what's going on. They just move through it. Um, autistic people don't have that. So what we do is we navigate social situations through intellect. And so you mentioned psychology. Um, I started studying psychology in middle school, just trying to figure out people because I, I didn't understand that I was different necessarily. I understood that, okay, these people don't make any sense to me. I just want to fi- figure them out. I, I did, like, you know, when I was 18, did start, people were really talking about ADHD at that point. I did start kind of grasping onto that. Mm. But um, the, the um, issue is that, you know, for many of us, like, my background's in the social science. Other than law, my background's in the social sciences, political science, economic psychology. Um, so those three things, I use those to navigate social situations. I, I use rules that I've learned from social situations. Like I said earlier about going to parties. I don't show up early now because I have found that most people who throw parties really don't want you there for the first 20 or 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. of the start time. <laughs> yeah. So I navigate based on the rules that I've had. And, you know, this, um, I was asked one time, um, I think it was my mother asked me to explain autism to her. And I said, I, and I tried to figure out a way to explain it. And I said, imagine you're blindfolded and you are listening to three people play a board game that you've never heard of before, never seen before. And they're playing it and they play for an hour. I said, take off the, you know, until somebody loses. I said, take off the mask. And we ask you, what are the rules? They're going to be rules you got right. There are going to be rules you misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And then there are going to be rules that didn't come into play in that particular game, so you don't know they exist. That is what autism is. We were looking for rules or trying to formulate rules to deal with the chaos, understand the situation. But the problem is, you know, for an autistic person to try and come up with a, this seems to be a rule of society, when we don't instinctually necessarily see what's going on in society, like we miss a lot. And so I think that is a, um, I think that's a good definition, a good explanation of autism. And I think this is what comes into play when I say, um, you know, we, we navigate situations intellectually. We, you know, what rules do I know? How does this compare to other rules? You know, and we get attacked a lot of times for being such rules followers. But I think one thing the neurotypical community doesn't understand is that we don't just follow rules blindly. If a rule isn't logical, we don't care about that rule. If a rule um, seems to be applied capriciously or arbitrarily, if it seems that it doesn't apply to this person, but applies to this person, um, that rule doesn't make much sense to us either. You know, there, I can remember a few years ago, I got into a conversation with somebody and we were talking about this idea of like, you know, trying to date people in the workplace. Mm. And, you know, she she was like, well, you know, you just don't do it. You know, you, you should not do it. You don't do it. But when you look at how many people, you know, that met their partners in the workplace, that rule doesn't make, that rule doesn't have as much standing okay 
because yeah. because you're like, wait, why are you telling me to obey this rule when this person, this person, this person, Joe Scarborough, you know, I, one of my favorite jokes was um, Joe Scarborough ended up, I think he married his, his co-host, uh, Mika, I think is her name. And somebody called it a Me Too moment that worked. A Me Too moment that worked. He came on to her. She was actually receptive of it. Oh, okay. I get yeah. it. I get it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and so... Um, so, Weird know, way to put it. But. The, the, the rules have to make sense. No, that's true. I also feel like rules can sort of provide like a sense of like comfort and safety. Oh, absolutely. Like because I'm terrified to do absolutely anything that could get me in trouble. So, you know, this, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about we don't like chaos. Yeah. If you get in trouble, there's chaos. Mm-hmm. Every rule that we have basically formulates this barrier that gives us enough sense of security to leave the house in the morning. And so if we're out in public and we're told, you know, um, people don't do this, but then people start doing that around you, one of the rules no longer makes sense. One of the rules is being violated. So then you start thinking, wait, if that rule is violated, do any of the other rules that I am, that I am relying on to keep me, to give me the confidence to, to, mitigate, to mitigate the chaos enough to leave the house, how do I know that any of the other rules are apply now? And so um, we do tend to be rules followers because if one of the rules is broken around us, then all of a sudden it can cause a, it can cause a meltdown eventually because we start spiraling through this, okay, the rules, the rules don't apply. What's going to happen next? And so, um, again, it's all about trying to mitigate this, this sense of chaos that mm-hmm. our brain is constantly being attacked with. Um, you know, I, I think for a neurotypical, it would be, to be honest, I don't know why they do this for fun, <laughs> but it would be um, being in a place with loud music and strobe light with people moving all around you, okay. bumping into you and stuff. That's, that's like how we feel on a general basis under like a minimal amount of stress because lights become brighter, sounds become louder. People just seem like they're closer. That's true. You, you know, when I, I don't know um, what some of yours are, but like, um, when I, some, and sometimes, like, one thing I wish, sorry, I'm fudging my words, but one thing I wish more neurotypical people could understand is sometimes when we are overwhelmed, I feel like, I mean, I'm speaking from my personal experience, like, when I become overwhelmed, or especially with my emotions, or I'm in an emotionally charged situation, mm-hmm. like, when I'm sad, for example, like, I know that Typically, people like to be comforted when they're sad, mm. but I find it repulsive. Like, and I know that I have hurt people's feelings before. Like, when I'm in an emotional situation with them, and they reach like toward me, right. and I go, "Don't touch me," you right. know. And like, sometimes I feel like neurotypical people or people we just don't know very well that may not know we're autistic or know much Mm. about autism it's like we can offend people accidentally when really we're just trying to uh protect ourselves you know i i still you know the the thing about autistic people is we tend many of us tend to have um good memories not necessarily for academic stuff some of us do but for every like social interaction that ever went wrong in our life, because we'll just sit there and play your greatest hits someday. Yeah. And um, I, I still remember this one instance, you know, like I was sitting down and um, this female supervisor, manager, I can't remember. She was standing behind me and she put her hand on my shoulder and I'm very hypersensitive about being touched. Yeah. And, you know, it took a while for me to get used to the kids you know, girlfriend, you know, it takes a little while for, you know, if, if I, I still do this thing where like there are certain people I'll hug because I know it means something to them. Yeah. But I always be, I'm not a hugger, but I'm going to make an exception. <laughs> I always say that. And um, I, I think 
neurotypicals for many of us, because it, again, you meet one autistic person, you know one autistic yeah. person, so, and a lot of us are different, but there's some things that you tend to see in trends. For many of us, um, if we actually like let you touch us, that is a, that is almost a badge of honor. No, it's so true. Like, you know, my mom asked me once, um, you know, because uh, the joke in my family has always been like when I was littler and like even in my early 20s when, you know, my parents would want to hug mm -hmm. me, I would just stand there and let them do it, you know, mm -hmm. and then they'd be like, oh, come on. But then as I got older, you know, I like became more like comfortable with like mm -hmm. hugging people and you know again like I know it means something to hug and now sometimes like I'm at a point where when I hug somebody it actually does kind of feel kind of good you know like mm -hmm. I don't really like it when people like let it linger on and it turns into like a holding thing I'm like okay but right. my mom asked me once when she like tried to hug me and I went all stiff she was like you know how do you have a relationship she was like how how do you date she was like what happens when you date normal guys and she was like because they most people want to touch when you're dating somebody like they want to touch they want to be touched they want to touch you and i tried to explain to her how like yeah it's kind of like a badge of honor thing but also like i like when i like someone and i start dating someone i sort of almost have like a talk with myself and i'm mm -hmm. like all right like you don't they're going to want to touch you and they're going to want to rub mm -hmm. on you and they're going to want to hold hands and they're going to want to cuddle and you just need to be okay with it because mm -hmm. like that's how it is and so i can like not trick my brain but i can get my brain like used to like touching one mm -hmm. like the same person over and over it becomes easier right but like the majority of people like literally i feel like a body coming towards me and i'm like what you know that, that was a struggle when my kids were young because I, I can remember like sitting on the bed and like children just hanging on me you know and I was like my, my you know I have like a child right here my instinct um, is basically to like put my arm around her and flip her and like throw her off of me or like just show these children away and I'm like never did but like the, yeah. the instinct was always there because that's the first thing that comes to mind when somebody's touching me is yeah. how do I stop this <laughs> And I, I have just enough martial arts background to th be able to throw most people off. Oh, my God, stop, stop. <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, particularly when they weigh, like, 40 pounds. It's like, you know, this this is bad. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> that's one of those things I had to learn not to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, yeah, okay. Um, do you think uh, we're going to segue into the pandemic? Um mm -hmm. From your personal experience, how do you think the pandemic affected autistic people? Like, or do you? And if you do, um, what did you personally learn living through the pandemic from a mental health perspective? So one thing is, um, one thing is I think there were many autistic people that's like, oh, be stuck in my house and can't see anybody. I've prepared my whole life for this. <laughs> Um, you know, oh, I'm just going to work through the computer. So I, I think, I think um, for many of us, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. Okay, we're going to have less contact with people. Um, I think one of the major issues that came out of this is for years, the disabled community has been like, can I work from home? I'm not, I don't do well in, in you know, tight spaces. I don't do well with noisy spaces. Um, can I just do work from home? And they have been told, no, that would be impossible. Yeah. You know, that's just, it, it wouldn't work, can't do it. And it was, it was interesting how quickly the business community that has been saying for years that, you know, it would be impossible for you, people to work remotely. We didn't have the term remotely. Yeah. You know, working from home, that would be impossible to, oh, starting next week, everybody's working from home. Yeah. And we, here's the technology. And it's like, how, it's just telling, like, when there's a need, we can make it happen. Yeah. When there was a request for accommodations for, dis, for disability, it's an impossibility that, that just isn't viable. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was very telling. So, like, do you, I don't, I don't know if we touched on this, but, like, do you struggle with any like mental health things besides like autism I mean um, so I've been evaluated a few times in my life 
And um, it's basically, um, it's, so when I, I'm going to answer the question. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I meet a woman and she seems very anxious, she seems like she has a lot of anxiety. And I say women because at distance, you see this a lot more with women, I think. And, you know, you start talking to them and they're like, oh, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I have ADHD. My first thought is, oh, you're autistic. Yeah. Because there's so many providers out there that hit around the edges of what is autism. And those are the diagnoses I've been diagnosed with or treated for. Yeah. Now, would you say that you think that that happens because a lot of um, mental health professionals do not get a lot of, unless they choose to study autism, per my understanding, mental health professionals, they don't really study autism too in depth in school. Like they may have like a week or a chapter in a textbook about autism, but you know, do you think that that's maybe why, because females are also more misdiagnosed than males. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, do you think that's maybe why they get diagnosed with all these comorbidities of autism? I I think it's a few things. I think one, um, the standards were set through the male gaze, so we're we're looking at we're looking at how do men present these these um, traits. Okay. And so women women have a little bit. It's it's more of an uphill battle for women. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so for instance, with men, um, oh, you're socially awkward. Yeah. You know, so there's a chance you might be awkward, you might be autistic. With women, one of the things that, one of the predominant ideas that happens to female, or one of the predominant ideas of what happens to young autistic girls is many of them mask by finding another little girl and they basically become a carbon copy of that person. So if you're able to pretend to be this person or somebody similar to that person, you're General, if you're successful at it, you're generally able to navigate the social situations pretty well. Yeah. So the whole thing of are you socially awkward, people look and go, no, she's fine. They don't understand what's going on behind the mask. Do you think, you know, the lack of training with mental health professionals on autism is one reason so many people go undiagnosed for so long? So th- that was my first point was, yeah. was about that. And we've kind of... I know. So, I know. <laughs> we, we, we had a very autistic conversation. Now we're coming back. Um, so... The other things are, it is a lack of training. Um, you know, they're not looking at women in the first place for, for autism. Um, some are just hesitant to give the diagnosis. Um, you know, most doctors you go to, there, there are, you know, there's like 10 things they really know. And outside of that, it's a little more complicated. You know, go to your pediatrician. You know, okay, I'm going to send this in. It looks like a broken arm. I'm going to send this in. You know, get it actually find out if it's broken. That's kind of obvious. But, you know, pediatricians generally, you know, what do they see? You know, well, it's either bacterial or it's viral, you know. Yeah. So we're going to put you on antibiotics, see if that does anything. Um, you come in with, like, really complicated stuff, they have to send you to the specialist because that's not the stuff that they deal with on a day-in and day-out basis. Um, you know, um, my, my girlfriend's a physician. Um, she, she's a specialist. If you ask her questions about her specialty, she knows the ins and outs about it. Um, you know, she is, you know, on some subjects, she's one of the foremost experts in the state. Okay, cool. But, you know, outside of that, it's more generalized knowledge, you know, and stuff that like, you know, oh, I haven't done that since medical school. You know, those type of situations. So I think you have a similar situation going on with, um, with the psychi- psychologist and even the psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, there are some things that they see a lot of. And, you know, when my, when my father passed away, um, we didn't know why he, what he was dying of. We just knew he slipped into a coma. Okay. And when, when he passed away, um, well, before he passed away, there was um, there was a doctor who was around Christmas time, and doctors like, well, I'm on break, but I think this is sepsis, or sorry, not sepsis, 
Um, that's what it turned out to be. He thought it was lupus. Okay. And it's like, when I get back there, I'm going to check. Because he's a specialist in lupus, everything looks like lupus to him. Right? So, actually, my dad died of sepsis, not, not lupus, but, you know, this doctor just, that's his specialty. He knows enough to be able to put stuff into this box. Mm. And so, when you talk about psychiatrists, you talk about psychologists, autism, unless that's their specialty, that tends to be more on the fringes. They're more about the bipolar, some are bipolar, but they're more about the, sorry, some are borderline. They're more about the bipolar, yeah. they're more about the anxiety disorder, they're more about the depression. Those are the things that they can put into neat little boxes that they see on a regular basis. And the other stuff, it's just more on the outside, but you're more likely to be put in one of the boxes that they are familiar with. That's very true. You know, and that uh, brings me to a great uh, segue into um, talking for a second about the trainings that we at the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma offer. We do a lot of professional development. One of those trainings is autism training for healthcare professionals. We also have a lead work workplace neurodiversity project that is a training for employers to uh, understand the awesome reasons why it's great to hire autistic people and how to make accommodations for autistic people in the workplace. Um, and we also do a lot of first responder training because first responders also do not get too much training in their schooling on autism. Uh, if you are a health professional, a employer, a childcare provider, or a first responder and are interested in gaining free training on autism so you can better, um, how do I say this, accommodate the people that you interact with that have autism or be able to understand that someone you are interacting with may have autism, please go to autismfoundationok.org or call us, email us, and we will get you that information. Sorry, I just had to shout that oh, out. No problem. <laughs> um, I, and I think the work that uh, the foundation does with the uh, first responders is very important yeah. because unfortunately for many autistic traits, um, po police are trained that autistic traits are signs of drug use or dishonesty. Mm -hmm. And so um, being trained on autism, being able to recognize autism, I think is going to um, make society just a safer place for everybody. 100%, you know, uh, I mean, and you know, because you're on the board, but that really is one of our big focuses at mm -hmm. AFO is to train those first responders. Um, actually, uh, the Chickasaw Nation, um, they just gave a bunch of our sensory kits to their mm -hmm. police force. You know, um, and it's really awesome actually to see just in the time that I've been at AFO, uh, the receptiveness to first responders mm -hmm. to learn about autism and to have our sensory kits, you know, because uh, the more that people understand what autism, in it, autism is, the less autistic people may be incarcerated because, again, mm -hmm. a staggering number of autistic people end up in the um, criminal justice system and they end up homeless. Um, and per the criminal justice system thing, you know, I think a lot of autistic people would not be arrested and in jail if the police officer that they interacted with knew what autism looked like. Well, I mean, a good example is you um, interaction with the police officer. Police officer is, you know, I'm going to be in control of the situation. Mm -hmm that automatically causes a little bit of chaos because for the autistic person, you know, um, I've, I've often said I'm high functioning, but I'm not always functioning. Yeah. And the, the more stress I'm in, the less functioning I am. Yeah. And so in a really stressful situation, I've never had anybody pull a gun on me. I don't know how I would react to that. Oh my God. And so if I have law enforcement pointing a gun on me, I don't know if that's going to cause a meltdown. And when I'm caught, when you're having a meltdown, you're not really processing people telling you what to do. You know, um, you know, you have, you know, you're in a stressful situation. You have an officer has a gun on you, perhaps says, uh, get on the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay. Keep your arms above your head. Okay. Yep. Get on the ground. And you're like, well, I need to put my arms down so I can get on the ground. And you're like trying to figure out how do I get on the ground while having my arms above my head all at the same time. You cause a logical um, inconsistency in an autistic brain. Mm -hmm. That's going to cause a meltdown. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you're able to process even less. 
um, we don't like to be touched. Yeah. Many of us don't like to be touched. And it's reflexive action. Like I said, my children mm-hmm. would touch me. I had a, it, it was reflexive action and I caught myself on what was going on when I'm like, you know, wanting to like just throw her over my shoulder. Oh, like, yeah. like yeah. okay, we don't do this. Yeah. So an officer grabs you, it's very easy to, if you're having a meltdown, to push or try and get away, you know. And so I, I think things that the Autism Foundation does, like Project Safe Stop, yes. where, where they um, help law enforcement interact with autistic people in mock traffic stops, mm-hmm. and they help the autistic community understand what to expect in a traffic stop. Yep. Because the more that we understand what's going to happen in a traffic stop, the less chaos there is. The less chaos there is, the higher functioning we're going to be. The more we're able to function, the less likely we are to be shot exactly. or, or injured. And you know, forty-eight per, n- nearly half of all um, deaths by by police officers involve the disabled community. And so this is why this is one of my passionate issues. Besides. Um, suicidal um, awareness and advocacy is with law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I I agree. I think it's really important. Um, And that also just wants me to shout out, you can also contact us for free cards for your vehicle. Uh, One says passenger is autistic, the other says driver is autistic. You can hang those up in your cars um, to let anybody, you know, interacting with you out in public that you are autistic. We also have wallet cards that are made to be given to first responders that you carry in your wallet. And if you're ever in a situation where you're interacting with the first responder, you just hand that uh, first responder that card. Do you have it in your... I I actually, I helped design these so I I carry one. Yeah, Yeah, you can contact me um, and I can send these to you free of charge. They're a great resource to have. And um, I do just think it's also important to say, because I know that um, first responders are a political hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, um, you know, anyone who is receptive to expanding their knowledge um, has a passion to be better and do better. And I mm-hmm. think we're all capable of doing that. Um, so um, before we wrap up, I do just want you to touch a little bit more on the group you run called okay. Autistic of Adults of Oklahoma. It is a Facebook page. It, it, we have a Facebook page. Um, again, it's Autistic Adults of Oklahoma. Um, I'm, it was created by um, one, of our, one of our members, uh, Mark Wheatley. And um, I came on a few years after its creation and um, came on and eventually worked my way up to uh, co-chair of it. Um, he's the other co-chair. So we don't have a chair and a co-chair. We just have joint co-chairs okay (laughs) and um it is um it's a great organization um it's not really a therapy group yeah um it is more of a social group where you know come in and talk about people talk to people about your diagnosis is this kind of a normal thing is this abnormal hey i'm having a lot of stress right now at work because of this you know what do we do you know what should i do in this and it is um, autistic adults because we do deal with um, a lot of adult topics. Yeah. You know, we, we deal with we deal with work. We deal with um, relationships. We deal with you know stress of going home and seeing your family, and you know for Thanksgiving or Christmas, how do you survive the holidays? Um, and in general, I mean, we we have a um, pretty good time. Yeah. Um, we have over four hundred followers on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have weekly, or sorry, we have monthly meetings on the second Saturday of every month. Um, it's through Zoom right now. Um, you asked earlier how um, things changed. We went from a in-person meeting to online meeting because it's just a lot easier because for many autistic people, um, I'm going to go to this thing on Saturday. And then Saturday gets in. It's like, I cannot do people today. Yeah. No, that's very true. No, that's very true. Um the whole point of this podcast is just to have conversation about these issues so that more people become aware of them, you know, um, because a lot of people forget that autistic kids grow up to be autistic adults. It doesn't right. just disappear when you turn 18 or right. 20 or 21, you know, you are autistic for forever, as long as you're alive. And I, I think there's room for everybody. Exactly. I, I, I think there's room for everybody. I think you definitely need to have advocates for the people who are unable to speak for themselves. Yeah. But at the same time, 
you definitely need advocates, self-advocates, mm -hmm. for people who can advocate for themselves. Um, I think the complication comes when it's sort of one way or the other, where it's where you know we end up getting pitted against each other. Yeah. You know, at, at the at the point where you feel entitled to to tell when an autistic person says we prefer the term autistic people mm -hmm. and polling of the autistic community has shown this and you feel the need to um, actually say, well, then speak to my child. Well, that's first of all, not how polling works. It doesn't have to talk to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Second of yeah. all, you're, 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 you're not just dismissing that person. You're dismissing the thousands of people who took place, who took part in that poll. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's room for both sides and and i think the, i think the autism foundation does a wonderful job of advocating for autistic people in general um, we try really hard <laughs> I, I i think it's i i don't think it's it's one of the organizations where like you know we we have concerns about like okay who's running it because you know we have you know i mentioned earlier being the first board member but um who, who was autistic but um, you know, in the last couple of years, I can count at least three of us. Yeah. And yep. um, I know committees have, have, have you know, we have uh, on some of our committees, we have autistic people. And I know that they have done a really good job on hiring autistic staff. Like yep. they, they are trying to walk the walk, talk the talk, and actually give opportunities to the autistic community as well as a voice. Yeah, and you know, I will also say like, for the people on the staff, or the board that mm -hmm. are not autistic, they are personally impacted yes. by autism, you know? Um, so thank we, you for saying that. We, um, we have so many, we have so many experts yes. on, on, on the board. Um, you know, people who, you know, you know, maybe they're advocates for a family member, but we, we also have um, people with um, psychology backgrounds. Yep. Um, you know, we, we have people with law enforcement backgrounds yep. that helps that helps us. Um, one of our board members, um, Corey Sutton, um, actually went from training police officers at OU on, uh, well, working at OU as a police officer, training other police officers from across the state mm -hmm. on um, how to recognize and interact with autistic people. He went from that to actually working for the state now yeah. doing this training. And so, um, you know, we, we probably have the the best collection of experts and different viewpoints, uh, different different expertise, a collection yeah. of I think any group in Oklahoma. I think so too. We're also um, an IVCCES certified autism center, and the entire staff. We are all um, independently um, certified autism specialists mm -hmm. as well. So you know we really do take this seriously, and I just want to. Um, uh, bring up again, like, I really do like what you said a second ago about how there really is room for everybody. And mm -hmm. that is something that we all uh, involved with AFO do think is, you know, um, there's just because a person may not be autistic, mm -hmm. uh, you can't, you are still part of the autism community if you are impacted mm -hmm. by it. You know, right. like if you are neurotypical and you have a child, like for example, my mom, you know, mm -hmm. like my mom is not autistic, but right. yet she has me, an autistic child. Mm -hmm. She is f for the rest of her life gonna be a part of the autism community because right. I'm autistic. And um, so, yeah, I just want to really hammer home that point. Um. Well, you know, I, I think I think there's been a lot of growth in, mm -hmm. in the last few years. You know, um, we, we've gone from a situation where, um, you know, if something was dealing with autism, they went to they went to they didn't go to groups that were represented by autistic people or that um, self advocates, they, they went to groups that basically were advocating on behalf of others. And I think we are now seeing a point where autistic self-advocates are getting a seat at the table, are able to have input. Thank you again for tuning in to Unmasking Autism with AFO. I'm your host, Carly Marissa Dummett. Thank you again to the Oklahoma State Department of Health. And for any information on our trainings or our events, 
please visit www.autismfoundationok.org or follow us on social media platforms at Autism Foundation OK. As always, thank you so much and we'll see you next time.